0: Hi everyone, I'm Sherry Carney and I'm a practicing attorney in California representing victims of child sexual abuse. I'm also a survivor. And this is Roar with Sherry. All things justice for women and survivors. You can find us on our social media at Roar is One. Yes, that's the number one. And at Sherry Carney and on our website, Roar is One.org. I've spent over 30 years surviving child sexual abuse, rape, incest, campus sexual assault. And if there's one thing I've learned, it's this. Our greatest gift can be found in our greatest trauma. Our trauma, our pain cuts through to our inner core and reveals the magic within. And that once survivors find their voice, begin their healing journey and come out the other side, there is no stopping us that from trauma comes resilience and healing. You are fearless, brave, strong, courageous, magnificent, and I love you. I want this to be a podcast that's real, unpolished, gritty, honest, and reflects both the pain and purpose that comes from being a survivor. We will always ask, what happened to you? What have you experienced? What have you lived through? What have you survived? What is your story? And what must be done to bring you healing, closure, and yes, justice? The purpose of this podcast is raw emotion, our stories, inspiration, perspiration, and ultimately power through justice for survivors. Each episode will include conversations with guests who inspire me, offer insight into the law, help survivors find justice, victim stories, and life changing transformations. People who are teaching me, challenging me, and inspiring me to move forward. I'll also have direct conversations with you about what I'm learning from survivors and experts that may help you break silence, speak out, find your purpose, seek and receive justice, so we'll do some episodes dedicated to answering your questions. You are not alone. This is your safe home for open, honest, provocative conversations about the dark secrets 81% of us have experienced, but don't talk about. You do not have to walk this path of life by yourself. You are not alone. We are here and we will roar as one. All things justice for women and survivors with you. I'm Sherry Carney. Welcome. Hi, everyone. I'm Sherry Carney and this is Roar with Sherry. All things justice for women and survivors. You can find us on social media at Roar as One, that is the number one, and at Sherry Carney and on our website, roarasone.org. In this episode, I'm talking with Allison Bresler, M A and Gloria Scritzy about little fires everywhere when it comes to intimate partner violence that occurs literally, according to these two women who are amazing. It occurs everywhere from communities of wealth to financially stressed neighborhoods. There is love and murder in suburbia, murder in the inner city, in the barrio, in middle class developed communities, from the richest to the poorest, from the wealthiest to the most financially stressed. Yes, we are talking about domestic violence, dating violence, intimate partner violence, beatings, murders, and more hidden behind closed doors. It is a little fire everywhere, a dirty little secret. Things that go on. One family's tragedy that we're going to discuss underscores the peril of concealing abuse by an intimate partner. We discussed love and murder in suburbia, a true story, which was an article written by Allison Bresler, M.A. During the early hours of September 9th, 2002, Peter Clancy arrived at his house in upscale New York, armed with a kitchen knife. He tried the garage, which did not respond to his opener, and then the front door. But the lock had been changed, so he picked up a chair from the desk and hurled it through a kitchen window, Deborah Riggs Clancy, his wife and the mother of their four children, was stabbed to death in front of two of her four children by her husband, Peter. She had recently filed a protective order against him. Deborah Riggs Clancy, 42, died in her Westchester County home. Her husband, Peter Clancy, was charged with first degree murder. According to authorities, he broke into the wife's home, violated the protective order and stabbed her to death. It was hard for Petey, 11, Jimmy, 10, Tina, 8, Joey, only 5, to cope with life without their mother. They feared anyone who came to the front door would kill them. Because Jimmy and Joey had witnessed the killing, the two boys couldn't sleep for months. We are roaring today with two sheroes, Allison Bresler, M.A., and Gloria Scritzy who says domestic violence knows no socioeconomic boundaries. It can happen, again, in the wealthiest communities to the most financially stressed. These women say that one in four women in the United States are victims of domestic violence. Statistically, there are nine significant incidents before a call to the police. That's why Bresler and Scritzy have made it their life's mission with their nonprofit, A Partnership for Change, to End Intimate Violence intimate partner violence. As co-founders and co-directors, they want to empower and teach the vulnerable before they are victimized by educating the young, the less young, the poor, the incarcerated, the wealthy, teenagers, and all of us. We will learn about their incredible programs, education, and insight that led them to the empowerment of anyone, any age, seeking control of their own relationships so they can be safe, You do not have to wait to be a victim in order to take control. They'll talk to us about how to identify signs of potentially dangerous relationships, whether you are currently in a relationship, preparing to leave or have left. We understand that violence in an intimate partnership is a threat to all of us. These women are working to build a better future for everyone so we don't have to live with intimate partner violence. Allison Bresler, MA, is co-founder and co-director of A Partnership for Change. She has been a domestic violence advocate, counselor, hotline worker, outreach coordinator, and program director. She has devoted her career to empowering victims of abuse and educating first responders as, again, co-founder of A Partnership for Change, a New Jersey nonprofit. Gloria Scritzy is co-founder and co-director of A Partnership for Change as well and has worked in the field of domestic violence and sexual assault since 1983. So let's jump to our conversation. Let me just start by saying how much we appreciate both of you making the time and space with us today to put this information, your lifetime of work and commitment of work, of service, to stop intimate partner violence out to the public so we can hold it and and know it and understand it, to admit it, face it, take it, out of the hidden shadows of suburbia, and out of the closet of the home, out of fear and injustice. Thank you both for freeing us to see this issue more clearly and for being who you are and the work you are doing today. Welcome, Allison and Gloria.
1: Thank you so much, Shari. We are thrilled to be here. We really appreciate you doing this for us.
2: Yes, very nice to be here, and uh, we really do appreciate the work that that you do as well.
0: And the first speaker was Allison, and the second speaker was Gloria. So we need to know who's talking so we can listen to your golden words of wisdom. Thank you. So first of all, I want to ask a general question. How did you both decide to take on this incredible, powerful, personal issue of intimate partner violence? I mean, it's not something ordinarily we move
1: towards. So what, What Allison, made you go into this space you know, I have to tell you what it, I have. A, it's a pretty crazy story how I got involved in this issue. Um, I actually started out owning and operating dating services many, many years ago. I was a matchmaker. And oh, my God. <laughs> I, was, I was a matchmaker. And that was in the early 90s. And um, I decided I wanted to leave the industry. But what I wanted to do, what I gleaned from the work as a matchmaker was I love talking to people about relationships. And that was just very fulfilling for me. And so I decided to go get my master's degree, so I could become a marriage counselor. And during my degree, I actually decided to do an internship at a domestic violence agency. And so I got a terrific, um, a terrific internship in an agency where I actually met Gloria. And what do they, of course, teach you the very first day I started my work, as an intern at a DV agency is there is never marriage counseling where there's domestic violence. And uh, I remember going home to my, my husband that night and saying, um, you know, this goes my dreams up in smoke, but I have to tell you, I found my calling. This is my absolute, this is why. Hold on
0: one second. There is
1: never marriage counseling where there's domestic violence. What do you mean by that? Well, we find it to be counterintuitive. We do not do marriage counseling or couples counseling when there is a dynamic of one person having power and control over another person. And the reason why we don't ever put a a situation, a couple together when there's DV in, in play is because there's always going to be a consequence. You're going to get a victim who doesn't necessarily want to disclose for fear of what the consequence would be if they do disclose Or if they actually do say what's happening in the relationship, there's going to be a negative consequence when they leave that office. It's actually a safety issue. And it can be very dangerous to put two people together when there's especially been physical assaults or terroristic threats or threats for physical assault. You know, that is
0: so interesting, Allison, because I never would have thought of that. I would think that if people were having a domestic violence problem, they would go to counseling. But you're absolutely right. Uh in a past relationship of mine where there was some issues, we lived apart for six months, went to individual therapy. And only when we got the situation a little bit under control, uh, did they do couples therapy. Yeah. So that's very interesting. And at the time, I didn't even realize it was I, I didn't even realize I was a victim of domestic violence. But we'll talk about that another time. I, I You know, there's so much sexual assault and abuse in my life you know, domestic violence was sort of lower on the totem pole, mm-hmm. but it's crazy because it all goes together.
1: Yes. It and all you know, it all
0: goes together. So I will you know, say it's denial on my part.
1: In, in about 45% of the cases where there's been a physical assault, there's actually been a sexual assault. So we know that they are intermingled absolutely. Well,
0: without a doubt. Abuse. And then sexual abuse survivors, who are used to situations of boundary crossing, physical violence, sexual violence, tend to gravitate toward a more abusive partner. You either gravitate toward an abusive partner or you gravitate toward a completely passive, non-abusive partner. Um, Okay, and tell me, Gloria, how did you come into this space of intimate domestic Violence. A
2: very different route. Um, I originally started out my career um, working the corporate life. So, and I was just miserable. I didn't <laughs> like it. I didn't like going to the cubicle every day. And um, I knew I wanted to do something different, but I just didn't know why. So, when I made a career change, my first job was in um, for a community action agency. So it was my first taste of nonprofit work, doing grassroots you know work with people in in Rockland County. And there I met uh, who would who would eventually be my future director at a domestic violence shelter. So I made some connections there, and then from that job, I went to a domestic violence shelter in Rockland County, New York. And then my old boss at the Community Action Agency had an opening at another uh, domestic violence shelter in Westchester. And I went there to do um, community education, outreach, development, working with volunteers. And that's where I met Allison. um, So it sounds
0: like it wasn't that the issue, it wasn't that you were called to the issue, the issue called to you. It's like the universe called to you and said,
2: help. And I think like many people, In this field, even though I didn't have a personal story to tell, when I started learning about the issue, what I did realize I knew so many women who were going through this, especially when I was a young adult, when I Mm -hmm. was in high school, when I was in college, when I was first in the workforce. And I wish I could go back and change things that I said. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the when we work with teenagers, a lot of teenagers will ask me, Well, what got you into this? And like, I don't want you to be a young person with a regret saying, I gave somebody the wrong advice, you know, because we just didn't know back then what was happening and how to really help somebody in a safe and effective way.
0: And we don't know now without programs like yours, without outreach and education, teenagers still don't know. Adults still don't know. Parents of adult children don't know what to say. You know, they say things like, you know, dress cuter, have a date night, look sexy, make dinner for him, uh, you know, get, have the your mother babysit the kids. We still don't know what to say to a loved one or a family member or a friend who we suspect is being abused in an intimate relationship. So I wanted to ask, Allison, you did an article called Love and Murder in Suburbia, A True Story in mm. Scientific American Mind. And you... You focused on the story of Deborah Riggs Clancy. Can you talk to us a little bit about the Clancy story? Um, Because we use that as an example of an affluent um, woman with four children who is murdered by an affluent husband. And we're scratching our heads saying, you know, I, I think there's discrimination, reverse discrimination, Allison, against. Wealthier women who are victims because less wealthy women say you can get out, you have money, you pick this guy, you want all the benefits, and now you don't want to pay the price. And there's a lot of a lack of empathy. And I think the, the series Little Fires Everywhere really shows us that whether you're wealthy or you're, you know, financially stressed. It doesn't matter. So, can you talk to us about the Clancy case for a second? Sure.
1: Um, well, first, what I can tell you is even before we get into that, I, I think a lot, there's so much stigma when you discuss middle class to affluence, especially affluence. They're so concerned about community judgment. They're so concerned about the shame around it that they tend to not pick up the phone. There's also a misconception of people from affluent communities, victims slash survivors of affluent communities, that social service agencies are not there to support them. They tend Mm -hmm. to think those are not for them. So they reach out to private therapists who are not well-versed in domestic violence and tend to re-victimize, so they're further closeted. And so um, we do work with affluent communities because we want them to understand that there is support out there. In regards to uh, Debbie's, Deborah Riggs situation, we were brought in. I was actually brought into this case um, the day after she was murdered. And um, I came into work and my executive director at the time said, the family is asking for a counselor up at, up at the funeral. And two days after her passing. And, um, and I said, I'm not going. (laughs) And she said, you're going. And I said, all right, I'll go. And I went up and that is where I met her sister Darlene for the first time. Mm -hmm. And um, it was, it was just, it it was overwhelming. In fact, Darlene did not even remember meeting me years later when I came back and and I spoke to her for other reasons. And I followed this case straight through his arraignment, straight through his sentencing. I I am, well, you know, I'm, I'm quite friendly with the family now to this day. And the situation was, is that if, if I'm going to give you the long and short of it, Debbie met Peter Clancy when she was in elementary school and he moved into the cul-de-sac in which they lived. So they grew Mm -hmm. up together and they did start dating from the time Debbie was a teenager. And all along, you know, Peter, as they described, it was very reserved Highly, highly intelligent young man um, was not particularly social. Did not have many friends. Was very focused on Debbie. Um, Debbie was sort of a sassy pants. You know, she was an envelope pusher. She had a lot of personality. And Debbie, um, Debbie found something very interesting. I think he evened her out to a certain extent. But the abuse started early, and it always starts as it does with any abusive relationship: with jealousy and possessiveness. He had struggles with her uh, outside friendships. He had struggles with decision-making. He had struggles with her relationship with Darlene, her sister. He would isolate her from friends and from family. Mm -hmm. But what he always told her is I am going to give you the life you deserve. Stick with me, do what I say, live the way I tell you to live. And I will make sure that you have the greatest life ever. And the reality is, is that from the outside people, people thought that she had the greatest life. She had four beautiful children. She had a magnificently gorgeous home. Mm -hmm. Um, she had everything, cars, she had everything people from the outside would think that this is it. She has the life. But what people didn't realize is that he was literally terrorizing her every day. And, um, he had just horrifying expectations. Um, For example, he was highly educated. He was highly successful. He did not want his children fraternizing with children of blue-collar families. He was very specific about what they would watch on television. They were not allowed to watch shows that depicted um, blue-collar workers or a lack of education. He uh, did not allow Debbie to spend. He gave her a very small allowance to do shopping for the family. Oftentimes she'd have to go next door to her neighbor and ask for a loan just to do family shopping. And she oh, didn't know. Yeah. She didn't purchase things on sale. She was told to bring it back. She, he monitored everything. It got so bad that she would actually ask her neighbor, if she put her garbage in her, in her garbage so that Peter would not go through the garbage to see what she was spending. Really and so, um, the, the truth is Peter presented beautifully. Right. And the problem is, is that Debbie spoke to people. She talked to her child's pediatrician. She spoke to her OVGYN. She actually spoke to people and said, this is happening, but they found it hard to believe because right. she had a beautiful life and she had a beautiful family and Peter presented himself articulately and intelligently. And so when you're living in a home with somebody who was that assaulted verbally, emotionally, very physically abusive, Um, So when you say physically abusive, like, I mean, first
0: of all, we're talking about someone who's controlling every aspect of your life. He's going through your garbage. He's probably monitoring your phone. You know, you're living this affluent lifestyle, but you don't have enough food to really feed your kids. Right. Because he's monitoring the grocery bills. Mm -hmm. How was, I mean, that's enough abuse. That's like being, you know, that's like being uh, enslaved and imprisoned. Yeah. What was the physical abuse like? We know there was financial abuse, control, uh, emotional abuse, mental abuse.
1: He would um, slap her often. Mm -hmm. He would slap her across the face. He had slapped her in front of Darlene and and her husband. And um, he would blacken her eyes. He would threaten to kill her if she left. He, on one particular occasion, um, he actually slammed her head into the tile floor in the kitchen. Um, He actually stopped because he saw spilled jelly. He thought he cracked her head open and he thought that was blood, but it was jelly. Um, He, he, I mean, you name it, (laughs) you name it. After each child, he required her to lose weight within weeks. Um, He was just, he was, he was just everything you could imagine. A monster,
0: (laughs) a monster who, a monster is a monster, whether you're living in a mansion or you're living in a, (laughs) You know, mobile or, you know, mobile home. I mean, I think in this case, society discriminates against wealthy women who are victims of domestic violence, like you say, and they don't think that social, they don't think like hotlines are for them. They don't think that they can go to child protective service. They don't think that they can use sort of the community resources that women of less means use. Yeah. And that's a terrible situation. Plus, if you're seeing private doctors, private therapists, and the husband's paying the bills, it's very difficult to get them to do their mandatory reporting. Did anyone
1: report? No, nobody reported. I will say this, and this is opening up a whole can of worms, but um, when there's domestic violence, what we suggest, those of us that work in the field, is that if someone discloses they're being battered in their home and they have children, we understand what mandated reporting is. Our suggestion is to hold off. And the reason why we say hold off first in calling Child Protective Services is because we don't want children removed from the one parent they feel safe with. We don't want to re-victimize victims by punishing them by having their children taken from them because they're being battered. The hope is that the batterer will be removed from the home. Here's what
0: drives me crazy in Children Protective Services and in our policing of this issue. I do not understand why they remove the mother and the victims. Why do they not remove the alleged accuser, abuser, perpetrator? Why is it that you keep victims silenced with the threat of losing their children, losing where they live? And. Ending up on the streets, ending up with no money, losing their pets. When why isn't the first step in the legal system, in the CPS system, in the prosecutorial system, to remove the alleged perpetrator?
1: Well, and Gloria could speak to this as well. They're supposed to. <laughs> Let's they say they never do. The legal it's system always... is to. The batter is supposed to be arrested if there's a physical assault. I mean, every state and their laws are different, um, but there is a zero tolerance law throughout and it should be the batter is arrested state depending there's bail reform some don't go to jail at all it depends on what you know what the charges are um the hope is that the victim will get a restraining order and and maintain the restraining order there are circumstances around it why they don't do that i mean there's a lot that goes into it but the design especially of law enforcement is to remove the batter except they
0: don't I mean, it, in
1: most of the situations... Always. like in a lot of cases, they do. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they take the better with affluence. They take them for a walk. You know, they say right. it's house for a short period of time. Again, an officer that responds to a home of wealth and walk in the home and see a beautiful $2 million home and speak to somebody in um, a beautiful suit, well-maticured, manicured, is articulate and says, oh, it was just a fight that got enhanced. Very embarrassing. Mm-hmm. And you see maybe a victim who is very upset, uh, maybe crying, maybe even borderline hysterical from what just the trauma they just experienced. And you have a batterer who presents better. Sometimes, right. you know, you have an officer, It it's mm-hmm. all goes back to training. It all goes mm-hmm. back to training. You know, it's we hear so,
2: so much oh, get- from women. The, the thing we used to hear a lot is I'm staying for the children,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, and then ultimately when they leave, they leave for the children but you know a mom especially when there are kids involved a mom's first instinct is what is best for my kids and if you're somebody from an affluent area and your partner has access to the best lawyers a lot of money you seriously, you might never see your children again. Yep. Right. So there you go with another barrier to leaving. Yeah. Now that's a barrier for a lot of women, You know, no matter what their socioeconomic situation is. But for, for women who are affluent, um, they know what they're up against, protracted yes. custody hearings, um, things that will just drag out forever. And a lot of them you know, have told us over the years that they didn't think their kids knew what was going on. And then they look at what the life their children have, maybe something they never had, you know, maybe they're getting the tennis lessons and they're going to really good schools, you know, and they're getting good health care, you know, things maybe they didn't grow up with and they want their children to have. And they think, well, they don't know this is going on, you know, in the marriage. But we know, and of course, we know from working with children and from what victims have told us and what children tell us, they know exactly what's going on. So it's such a you know, and every case is different as Allison said. And it's you just can't one size does not fit all.
1: I will say this. Peter, Peter told Debbie often, if you leave me, I'll kill you. If you leave me and I don't kill you, I'm gonna make sure you never see your children again. I have the means and the ability in which to do this. Understanding Peter was a Harvard graduate. Peter was a senior vice president, I believe, of Barclays International Bank in the city, in New York City. You know, he was revered as an incredibly successful, you know, um, educated man. And so it was easier to believe what Peter was saying.
0: And it's very hard. I mean, one of the questions I get from people that don't understand this issue is why don't these women leave? And you both have laid out very clearly why they're trapped. Women of affluence are as trapped as women that are financially stressed. Mm -hmm. One can't leave because they're going to have to pull their kids out of private schools. They're going to have protracted legal uh, issues where they may not have the money to hire good lawyers. They're going to have possible loss of custody, loss of the lifestyle, loss of everything, in the same way that women of middle income and financially stressed income may not have the means or the resources to move out, get an apartment, take the kids with them, and, 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 and be able to feed their children. So, when we, we're we going to take a break. When we come back on the other side, we're going to discuss with Allison Bresler and Gloria Spritzi, co-founders and co-directors of A Partnership for Change, the warning signs that you are in a dangerous relationship.
1: This podcast is supported by Focus for Health Foundation. Together, we are in the fight to protect children from abuse. Learn more on our social media platforms with our handle at Focus for Health or by logging onto our website at focusforhealth.org.
0: Hi, we're back from the break. This is Roar with Sherry, All Things Justice for Women and Survivors. Welcome back with our guests, Allison Bresler and Gloria Spritzy, who co-founded a partnership for change to help victims of intimate violence. So when I wanted to talk to you both today, what are the warning signs of a potentially dangerous relationship?
2: Well, one of the things that we speak about like right off the bat, it's one of the first red flags or warning signs is jealousy and possessiveness. Mm-hmm. And this one is so easy to miss, especially when you're younger, because um, as we talked about before, you know, Since time immemorial, everything is about love and finding your partner in life, right? Yeah. So when when we talk to young people in particular, or even older women, where we say, when you first met your partner, if they showed little signs of jealousy and possessiveness, how did it make you feel? And what do you think most of them say?
0: Special. He really loves me. Um, uh, You know, he's madly in love with me, you know.
2: So there you go. Right off the bat, the first two um, are often missed. You know, it's it's they it's confused with love, and right. and that's why. So you kind of look at those two, and you're saying, okay, so those two were missed. Um, the other thing that we what people we look for all the time is um, having your partner isolate you from your support systems your friends and family and it doesn't necessarily have to be i forbid you to see your friends or it, it could it's usually normally done in a more um a seductive way or in a in a way that makes them feel like you're you're really caring about me so um you know i don't you want to spend time with me you know um you're always with your friends know, could you okay. make more time for me and you then you kind of feel guilty so there's that whole thing that goes on, and again, it's never um, just—it's very gradual. So it doesn't happen you're like in one fell swoop. So as you're kind of in this relationship and you want to spend more time together, and your partner's asking you, even in a nice way, you know, all of a sudden you start to see that maybe your friends and family are getting a little frustrated with you. And I go back to what I said at the beginning about being young in in high school, when we saw that with some of our friends, we were angry with them. We said, you know what? Why are you spending all your time with your new boyfriend and you never have time for us anymore? Like you're dropping
0: us. The old thing about women, as soon as they get a boyfriend or a husband or whatever, they drop their friends. What they don't understand is that maybe they're not dropping their friends. Maybe they're with somebody who is controlling and there's intimate violence. And that is so interesting because I never thought of that. We always place the blame on women that as soon as they find a guy, as soon as they get married, as soon as they have this, they drop their friends, their friends. Their family, their whatever. Maybe it's not always them. Exactly. Maybe they're in a, in a in a
2: grooming process of intimate partner violence. Yeah. Then we tell people that you know to um, if you see that happening with your close friend or family member, you know uh, that could be a sign. That could be a red flag. And don't just take it as that they're dropping you, but maybe there's something else going on. So isolation is another uh, you know red early warning sign, red flag that we. We talk about. Okay. And, and you're really right, Gloria,
0: because all of these are tumbled into the hallmark ca- card of love and you're my soulmate and I don't want to spend time with anyone but you and that whole, maybe our whole image of love, public love and what love is, is geared toward domestic intimate partner violence in a very subtle way because it constantly is telling the loved one that this is love and not a progression that could possibly be controlling and violent. Yeah. How many women are in domestic, intimate partner, violent relationships? What do you
1: guys see? Well, nationally, one out of four women. One if you step out of your home, this is Allison, by the way. If okay. you step out, step out of your home and count four in either direction, if there is a relationship having, happening. There is some level of domestic violence happening. Wow! But let me let me explain something, if I may. People misunderstand what domestic violence is by virtue of the word "violence." So, I think what people need to understand is really the true definition okay. of domestic violence, which is a pattern of behavior that instills fear of negative consequences through the use of power and control. Now, most people don't even understand what that means. So let me get Yeah, to I don't understand right.
0: what that means, because so that sounds we, like government. It sounds right. like the law. It sounds
1: so like politics. It sounds like media, media, you know. <laughs> I agree. So what I tell people whenever I do my trainings, I say, listen, if you are not going where you want, if you're not doing what you want, expressing yourself the way you want, dressing the way you want, spending the way you want, living your life the way you want. If you're not doing these things because you're fearful of a negative consequence from your partner, you're being abused in your relationship. It's as simple as that. That's really interesting because sometimes women
0: put this thing in their head that they're going to like the, you said, Peter wanted her to lose the baby weight within a certain period of time after she had each child. Sometimes women misinterpret that, that they're doing it for love or that he really cares, or he he wants to be attracted to her again. He wants to have sexual connection with her again. And the weight is a problem, but that's all BS. It is. This is very interesting. So I didn't mean to cut you off. So I do think we don't understand what domestic violence means. I think almost every woman feels like it's a punch, a slap, a yanking of the hair. I don't think that we as women see the control aspect, the monitoring aspect, the not having to do, like people say relationships require sacrifice. So mm-hmm. I think women feel like if they sacrifice what they want to do or where they want to go or how they want to dress That's part of love. But we see
1: men do that. Here's the difference. I might say to my husband, I really don't want to go to that Yankee game, but I love you. I'm going to go to the Yankee game. It's the last thing I want to do. But for you, I'll do it. Right. Right. But so that is just a relationship, right? Right. But if I'm told I'm going to the Yankee game and I think to myself, I don't want to go to this game, but I know that if I say I don't want to go. I might get raged at, I might get ignored for three days, I might get slapped, I might get just not spoken to, I might get put down. And you know what, I don't want to deal with that negative consequence of saying no. So you know what, I'm just going to go, because it's easier. And that is true abuse in a relationship, my power has been taken from me, I acquiesce because I'm fearful Whatever that negative consequence is, whether I'm going to get raged at, whether I'm going to get put down, whether I'm going to get hit, whether I'm going to get told I can't leave the house for six weeks, whatever it is, if I am not doing what I truly want to be doing realistically, because I'm scared of what my partner is going to do in response, then I'm being abused in my relationship. That's really clear. That's good because you're
0: right. All of us in relationships make, you know, adjustments. Like I'm sure there's things I want to do. My husband doesn't want to do, but he loves me. So he'll do it. But he doesn't feel like if he does it, you know, I won't cook for a month or I won't, you know, I'm going to, you know, slap around or, you know, I don't mean to tease about it, but, you know, I wouldn't even consider slapping him around. Right.
1: And I, I mean, think we, we cool. have
0: horseplay and we, you know, we carry on like two teenagers, but, you know, we're each kind of getting part of the end of that. You know what I mean? But it doesn't escalate past fun and horseplay. It's not th- that. So you're so right. And I think it's confusing. I wanted to talk a second um, about dating abuse because one of the things we're seeing is a rise in teenage intimate partner abuse yes and so you have a program called power back and so can you talk to me I what are what's the incidence of dating abuse happening in schools like high school what would you say among a hundred high school students what percent that are dating have intimate partner abuse or dating abuse <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> her know.
2: I can tell. Um, I can tell you nationally, we always quote the one in three, okay? Uh, one in three teenage girls um, is a victim of de- teen dating abuse. What I also can tell you is at the local level, and I mean New Jersey, um, since 2009, um, since we've been operating Powerback, we've surveyed um, 18,000 students, high school students okay on a confidential survey. So part oh, of our wow. program is we we kind of launch the year with these forums, these teen assemblies where Allison does a teen dating abuse 101 and when she explains what abuse is just like she did to your mm-hmm. audience that's when a lot of light bulbs go off because just like adults teens think it's just physical abuse. They don't understand that it, it incorporates, you know, emotional, verbal, sexual all of this. So then after they have this presentation, we give them a confidential survey where we ask them. And I'll tell you, 72% of the students tell us it's happening in their school. And how okay. do they know it's happening
0: in their school? Because that's off the charts outrageous. Yeah. 72% of teens are experiencing or know that it's happening they at their know school. They know it's happening. it's happening.
1: They're aware of it. That's yep.
0: shocking. So. What is giving teenage boys, and I say boys, because primarily this is, it's not that women can't be abusive. It aren't physically intimate partner abusive. I'm not saying that, but everything I've looked at, what percentage is it male versus female? And does this mean that the most number of teenage boys in high school are abusing their dating partner?
1: No, but what it means is that they are at a, there's a higher propensity. So for example, when I first started working in this field, it was one out of 10 girls. Then it went to one out of five, and now it's one out of three. They didn't even have statistics on boys. Now it's one out of seven. So one out of seven boys are victims? of seven teenage boys. Now, what I believe is, is a big part of that is every group out there for young women is about empowerment. And so that's wonderful and terrific. Mm -hmm. Spend a lot of time telling our young girls, be empowered, be strong, be empowered, be strong. We're not giving them any more information. Mm -hmm. So you take young women who might be from more violent environments or women in general who are growing up exposed to violence in their home and they're misinterpreting empowerment. And they believe that what empowerment is, is to physically assault, to rage at, to act jealous, to be possessive, to do all these things. And so we're raising an entire generation of more violent young women, unfortunately. But then society tells young men, don't you take that from a woman. You don't take that from a girl. So the boys are coming back even harder because they don't want to tolerate it. So we're seeing very high incidences going into the schools. And we've worked with over 30 schools, more than 30 over the years. And what the school social workers and even the faculty are saying, we're seeing girls who are very abusive towards teenage boys. Now it's different in adult life. The number we're never going to get a solid number on adult men, but the number is as much women are being murdered. I mean, let's be honest, women are dying because of this issue, not necessarily men, but there is abuse happening towards our young teenage boys and they're class. And
0: And I think you brought up an interesting point, which is this, that when women look at power, they take a patriarchal model of power There is no feminine model of power that's pervasive enough so that when I remember during the feminist movement, one of the things the feminists were like were more like the power structure that men had traditionally held. I don't think that that's necessarily power, female power. I think that there's male power and female power, and it can be balanced. And I think women can take their power in what they're the most powerful in. You know what I'm saying? in themselves without it being abusive towards someone else. So all these teenage girls that are sort of kicking the ass of some teenage boys, how does that end up that as adults, it's primarily men abusing women and women are being murdered by it. what happened to those teenage girls once they got older
1: because they understand as they have more life experiences and more mm-hmm. emotional maturity how to problem solve and process differently and as a young boy for example um grows up say they're exposed say that they're even if they're battered or not or they're abusive it's I don't want to say it's instilled, but to a certain extent, society allows for that level of strength. They don't allow for abuse. I'm not going that far, but they allow for that strength and demonstrative and still in 2021, men who are entitled and have power, and that is appropriate. So what happens over time is the scales change. Mm -hmm. And you get into the working world where men are still making more money than women. And you get into the the world where women are still more nurturing, and are staying still staying home with children, Mm -hmm. and the dynamic just changes. And so women can be tough and strong. And yes, don't get me wrong, there are adult women who batter, but the number's are far more reaching when it comes to women who are being victimized. I will say this though, men do not pick up the phone. Men tend to, if they're calling the police for help and support, they're calling saying, you gotta get here, my partner's a crazy person, they're chasing me around. But as a pattern of behavior, you are not, we are not seeing men picking up the phone saying I am being victimized and, and I
0: need help. And, and support. I think it's the same thing with male victims of child sexual abuse. It's considered weak, unmanly, Absolutely. you know, uh, any sexual overture by an older woman is supposed to be welcomed. Yes. Um, it's supposed to be, you got lucky. There's a totally different pressure on men right. to be strong, to fight back. Don't be a pussy, you know? So I do think one of the problems is that men that are raised physically abused by fathers and families tend often to be intimate partner abusers. Well, they have a
1: 50% higher likelihood.
0: Wow. That I did not know.
1: Say that again, Allison. Children who are exposed within their home, whether they've been assaulted themselves or by a parent or a guardian, or have been exposed to abuse within their home between their parents and their guardians, have a 50% higher likelihood to perpetrate. be victimized. And so all those
0: parents that think their kids don't know, you know, the Clancy kids that witnessed their mother getting slapped around, controlled, having to get coupons at the market because she doesn't have enough grocery money to feed four children, throwing her trash next door, having her head slammed against the tile. Any parent mother that's home that thinks if any of that's going on, your children don't know. They do know.
1: Children actually know more than sometimes the victim. The children is because they're witness. When you, when you suffer a trauma, sometimes you tend you forget it. And so what right. we see, and part of what we do in our police program when we train and speak to the officers is how to talk to the kids appropriately, age appropriately, of course, to get the best information.
0: That's and let me ask you, how do we support loved ones that are victimized by an intimate partner if the loved one won't talk about it or they're in denial or they're trying to hide it? And and if they do come to us, what is the best way to support someone that says, you know, I'm in an intimate partner violence relationship?
2: I think the first thing you have to do is believe them, believe their story. I think the second thing that we would recommend and what we try to do with a partnership for change is educate yourself. Mm -hmm. If someone discloses this to you, you know, you want to just be there for them. You don't want to tell them what to do. They already have somebody telling them what to do, 24-7. Right. So you kind of have to just let them tell their story and um, meet them where they're at is what one of the phrases that we use. But in the meantime, you know, offer to call a hotline with them. Know your resources. You know, a hotline could be used by victims obviously, but a lot of people don't know that a friend of or a family member of a victim can also call a hotline just to get information and say that, you know what, my sister-in-law or, you know, my cousin disclosed to me, I really, I don't know what to say. I don't want to say the wrong thing, which is what we hear so often from people that they're afraid of saying the wrong thing. So they say nothing. Well, like
0: like Allison said, Darlene, the sister of Deborah uh, Clancy, Knew that she was being violently abused, correct? Am I correct on that, Alison? Yeah,
1: but Darlene Darlene would say to Debbie, get mm. out. And That's Debbie would out. say, would respond with, you know, Peter says you're just jealous of our relationship. And,
0: right.
1: um, you know, just don't worry about it. Listen, we come from a place of love. We want to support somebody. We want them out of it. We want them safe. So our place of love, like Gloria just said, might sound like another person trying to control them. You know, the most important thing that we can do also is name the abuse. We as bystanders to a certain extent tend to respond with, you know, they're being abusive towards you. That's not enough. You need to be specific in what you see and what you hear and say this happened and that happened and that is this type of abuse. And you are being abused emotionally, technologically, financially, however it is based on what they're either being told by the person being victimized or what they're seeing and hearing themselves and,
2: and let them know that it's not their, fault. not their fault. You know, they've maybe never heard that before because yeah. all they're hearing from their abuser is everything's your fault. Yeah. yeah. Every problem we yeah, have is your fault.
0: I agree so, with that. I mean, you know, in my we, own, in my own situation and I was, you know, in what I thought was a great relationship, you know, many years ago, it was a friend of mine who said, you know, the fact that you have to be home every night by 11 o'clock is abuse. You know, you're a grown woman. I'm your friend. You race out of here in the middle of a conversation because your partner's going to be upset if you're not home when they're home. And she said, I think you're being abused and I think you need to get out. I packed my bags and left for six months, moved out but i was a situation where i could support myself we we were not married you know it was you know before technology but i certainly understand that friends can be so helpful i also think for clients of mine where i've heard this I think that friends can help you store your passport, store your important documents, store money for you, store records, financial records, so that when you get out, your stuff is safe and stored. If you're thinking of leaving, and I'll take this advice from both of you many women need a plan, they need money. Yes. They need their their birth certificate. They need their passport. They need everything, and they need a place to put it that is safe and reliable, where he cannot find it and get them. Like I had someone else on this uh, broadcast who said she was able. To, she was a, a victim of uh, a forced marriage by a matchmaker in an ultra orthodox Jewish community, and the she her husband would give her five thousand dollars for a new wig because she had to wear a wig every day. Even though she has beautiful hair, and she would wash and freshen up her old wig, and store that five thousand dollars in the cereal box in the kitchen, and it enabled her to get out and bring her children with her. So, women that are being domestically abused in an intimate relationship, you know, you can't leave with a dollar in your wallet. But if that's the only way you can leave, leave. But I think a partner, a friend, a sister, a you know, someone you totally trust, a lawyer, your accountant, anybody, save your documents because. Some women that run don't have their birth certificate, don't have their passport, don't have credit cards. They have no way of getting anything. They have no identity. So what do you recommend that women prepare for if they do want to leave and they have it in their mind? How do they prepare? Well, I think...
2: Oh, go ahead, Gloria. No, no. Go. I was going to say, that's exactly, you call it a plan. We call it safety oh, planning. Safety plan. yeah. And so in every one of our presentations, even with young people, we talk mm-hmm. about having that plan. But- it's very important and it's good for friends and family to know about safety plans. We absolutely should. and all the recommendations you made are are great um, because you should have you know your documents together if you need to leave. you want to make sure that you know you' if you have can trust somebody close to you um, that if they know that you're in danger, to call 911. So we call it, you know, have a code word with your mm-hmm. friends. So you can call up and say, you know, I'm we, we're going to cancel dinner tonight. And they know cancel dinner is the code word to please call 911. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really important to let everyone know that you really should do a safety plan with a trained domestic violence counselor. Good idea. They can go through every element of a safety plan with you. Um, and make sure there's no stone left unturned, and you know they're they're taking the maximum, you know, uh, uh, caution on on every point. Especially so- <laughs> with
0: the, in this digital age where you can track everything on a phone. Like I have a friend of mine where her intimate partner had a, a GPS on her car, right, and it pinged her his phone every time she was somewhere. He thought yeah, she was
1: having an affair. She wasn't. It's very important, we tell everybody this, clear your cookies on your computer, change your passwords on mm-hmm. everything um uninstall apps every app you can that you're not familiar with that you're unsure of, anything that you can do will help you know in safety. you know leaving as I'm sure you know as many people know, leaving is the most dangerous time, so the
0: most say- dangerous time. Can you talk about that a second because I have clients, former clients who were murdered, one was murdered in the courthouse. Her husband slid her throat coming out of the hearing for the uh, permanent restraining order. It murdered her coming out of the elevator, slit her throat. Yeah. So why is leaving? And I believe that's what happened with, with, uh, you know, Nicole Brown, that she was in the process of leaving OJ Simpson and not just leaving physically, but disengaging from the control and the power and the, where are you? Who are you with? And that's when she got murdered.
1: Well, that's um, really what it is. It's the ultimate loss in power and control. And it's so dangerous because as a batter, they need to maintain that at all costs, no matter what. You take back your power, I'll be damned if you're going to take back your power. And that's why you see homicides are, when you read about it or hear about it, it's always sh- estranged wife, um, recently split, just divorced, paper signed, recently broke up. It is always around the exit because batterers don't want to let go of that control and Lord knows they don't want to see you with someone else because that's the ultimate slap in the face for them.
0: And even in the Clancy case, she had just recently re- received if I understand it correctly, a restraining order. And I don't know if she moved out already or had her own
1: residence or he had moved out. Um, but you know- um, yeah, what I could tell you is she had gotten, she had fi- well, the final straw was um, he'd given her money to redecorate their living room. And um, he wanted to know where every penny was. And he had left a message on their machine that said, we're gonna go home, we're gonna go over those receipts and you don't have every dime, I'm going to kill you. And it scared her. And so that day she went and got her order of protection and um, he was removed from the home and he was out of the home. She went to Darlene's house with the kids. He was removed, she moved back into the house and she was the happiest she had ever been for two weeks. It was literally two weeks. And so strong. it's, it's really, it's heartbreaking and, um, and it's unfair and it's wrong that he got a plea deal. And I will, I, I will always be the first person to put the accountability where it goes. Legal systems and laws need to change. They did take a plea deal um, and he got 20 years to life and I believe he's up for parole this year. And so, you know, pray that he isn't released. And so this happens legal system needs to work harder to maintain the safety of victims. And, and I do want to say one thing, really Sherry, the number one reason why somebody doesn't leave uh, an abusive relationship, Mm -hmm. you know, listen, there's a lot of things on the list. There's children, there's money, there's shame, there's no place to go. But the truth is a victim doesn't leave an abusive relationship because they don't buy into their options. You're not selling me anything I'm willing to buy. You do not have a crystal ball. You cannot tell me that when I walk out that door, it's going to get better better. and brighter. And so Mm. sometimes it's easier to navigate the hell I'm in than to walk through that door of I have no idea what's going to happen to me. And so until we can make these guarantees to victims, you will be safe. You will be, you will financially flourish. Your children will be happier. You can't do that. Until we can guarantee that, We cannot judge somebody for staying in the relationship, no matter who it is.
2: And it's important and as part of safety planning when it's done with, again, a domestic violence counselor, they will let you know about the dangerous times. They will let you know that couples counseling is contraindicated. Um, They will let you know that, you know, if you're ready to leave, what you need to have in place, if you're ready, where are you going to go? Like you said, do you have money? But when that decision is made, it's it's very, very serious for anybody because you just don't know what's going to happen. And only a victim knows what their abuser is really capable of
0: and And I want to follow up on what both of you have said, which is until the legal system and not just the legal system, the prosecutorial system, because prosecutors have a lot of discretion a lot of discretion. They're making these sweetheart plea deals. They're making the Epstein Acosta deal where there's immunity from any collaborators, conspirators moving forward. They're making the Cosby deal, you know, 16 years. So I think it's the criminal justice system to start. Prosecutors need to take this more seriously. They need to understand it. We need more female prosecutors. We need more female judges, We need more of a female voice in the issue of domestic violence. So I always close each interview with one final question that I'd love for both of you to answer, which is, if you're talking to a victim of intimate partner violence, if there was one thing you could give them to help them on their healing journey, what would it be? You, Allison,
1: first. The first thing I would say is love yourself most always. Mm -hmm. Put yourself first, put yourself first, or you and- the priority, you're the priority. And if you have children, they will become, they, they are collaterally that priority as well. And so love yourself most because you're deserving of it. Mm-hmm. That's what I say.
0: And it's like when you're flying an airplane, they say, if you're traveling with a child, put your own oxygen mask on first, yeah. then you're able to live long enough to put the mask on. your child and and gloria what's one thing you feel you could give a victim of intimate partner violence to help them on their healing journey
2: i think it's important for them to know how pervasive this is and that they're not alone Mm -hmm. that this happens to a lot of women so you take the stigma and the shame out of it and that like i mentioned before it's not your fault it's nothing that you're doing right you can't there's, there's nothing that you can change about yourself the, the fault is solely on the person doing the abuse, you know, the abusing. And that's, you know, that should provide some sense of, okay, you know, I'm not alone in this. You know, there are places I could go. There are people I can talk to um, that can help me. And um, I think that's really important. I'm so I grateful that you
0: both oh, are here for yeah. us in this conversation today. Allison Bresler and Gloria Scritzy. Um, The more we can understand intimate partner violence, murder in the suburbs, violence, The more we can do to protect, save, prevent, and end intimate partner violence, to prevent the next generation from being abused, hurt, murdered, violated by an intimate partner, whether the person being abused is a teen, a young woman, still married woman, divorced, dating, whatever stage the relationship is in, the more we talk about it and the more we understand, the fuller our lives can be, the safer we can all be the more connected we will all be and the more we can get justice for survivors and save victims of intimate partner violence from being murdered and hurt and abused. We'd love to hear from you. So email us at hello, roar podcast at gmail.com find us on social that's twitter instagram and facebook at roar as one yes that's the number one follow me sherry carney and know as all of you know if you want to donate for victims of child sexual abuse go to roar as one uh backwards slash donate it was such a privilege to talk to allison bresler and gloria Scritzy about this and gloria and Allison, how can people find a partner for change?
2: You can go to our website at www.apartnershipforchange.org. that's all one And we're on Twitter at APFCNJ, so a partnership for change NJ. Um, and we have a Twitter account, and um, so you can find us a couple of ways. Facebook. So, Check us out on Facebook. Uh, on Facebook. Like Facebook. <laughs> yes, Yes. like us on Facebook. It's the same thing. It's Facebook uh, backslash um, APFCNJ. And thank you for being a light of hope to all of those who are
0: victims of an intimate partner violence who are afraid or don't know what to do, don't know how to escape. They have children or pets, no place to go or resources or they don't have the information. Thank you both for the work that you do to help the one in four women in the United States who are victims of domestic violence. The world is a better place because of you, too, and all that you do. Thank you. And thank thank you you to our listeners. I'm grateful to you for spending your time with us today. Stay brave, stay kind, remember you can survive and thrive, I promise. And always speak up, stand up, and fight for yourself and for those who can't fight for themselves yet, who need you as their superhero, and be
1: the advocate you are for justice. This podcast is supported by Focus for Health Foundation. Together, we are in the fight to protect children from abuse. Learn more on our social media platforms with our handle at Focus for Health or by logging onto our website at focusforhealth.org. Thank you. Stay
0: safe and know that I love you. Roar with Sherry, all things justice for women and survivors is hosted by me, Sherry Carney, attorney at law, Produced by Chris Padretti, Associate produced by Amy Gutierrez. Sound engineered by the awesome Ronan Rosner. And music by the amazing Sharon Gatow. Roar with Sherry, All Things Justice for Women and Survivors is an educational program of Roar as One, Inc., a 501c3 nonprofit. We'd love to hear from you. Please follow us on our social media at Roar as One and at Sherry Carney, and go to our website, Roaras1.org. And as you know, all the Roar with Sherry podcasts have episode pages on Roaras1.org, and we will give you all the guests and all our social media handles on the website, RoarAsOne.org. Roar as One Inc. owns the copyright in and to all content in and transcripts of the Roar with Sherry, All Things Justice for Women and Survivors podcast with all rights reserved, including right of publicity. Sherry Carney, the host of Roar with Sherry, All Things Justice for Women and Survivors, is a survivor and practicing attorney in California representing victims of child sexual abuse, sexual assault, and sexual harassment. Even though Sherry Carney is a licensed practicing attorney in the state of california practicing in the areas of child sexual abuse sexual assault and sexual harassment this podcast is intended for informational purposes only there is no expectation of confidentiality and it is not intended nor should it be construed as legal advice for legal advice you should seek competent legal counsel if you're interested in speaking to Kearney's law practice they can be reached at KearneyAdvocates.com. Please note that Carney Law is owned by Sherry Carney. Carney is the founder of Roar as One. Roar as One is a nonprofit. Carney Law is a law firm and they are otherwise unaffiliated. The nonprofit Roar as One is providing this podcast as a public service and is informational only. It is neither legal advice, legal interpretation, legal representation, or a statement of policy. Reference to any specific guest, product, or opinion by the host or guest does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by rora's one inc sherry carney she heroes production inc the producers or our sponsor the views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent and is purely voluntary